Hi, guys. Welcome to episode 21 of Unexpecting the Podcast with me, Tara Lipinski, and my husband, Todd Kapastashi. On this episode, we finish our conversation with Krista McQuaid, who, after a 39 week stillbirth, decided to restart their journey to build a family. So, you had mentioned that, you know, at a certain point, you had started to finally become ready to try again. Um, And one of the most interesting parts, I think, about like restarting this journey is that. And I guess I understand why it happens, but doctors have to make sure. Well, I mean, you had talked about it like, well, I can tell you when I'm ready. Yeah. Um, But to go through a second surrogacy and even, you know, we'll talk about this, but kind of you went through a dual process of looking into surrogacy again, but also adoption. And there are psychological tests that you have to take to make sure that you're ready. Can you just explain that? Yeah, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Like you think you know your mind and your body and you can say like, I I know I'm ready. And I think to cover the doctor's basis and, and their science and their studies, they have to be able to say, is this person going to question every decision, every test, every, are they going to be micromanaging the next journey into where it's not healthy for them to be able to process the journey? And I think that that's kind of the main line of why they do it. And I understand, but it's frustrating for someone like myself that knows that I'm ready. Now you were to ask me if I was, when I was in bed for four days, I'm not ready. Um, yes, I want a child. Yes, I want to hold a child, but I wasn't ready then. And so it's hard to say to someone like, yes, please understand that I'm ready. Um, And so the testing was, I had to go through um, psychological testings with the therapist. I had to talk to the fertility doctor and do a whole Zoom call and he was like, are you sure? Because I just don't understand that how you can be ready so quickly after this tragedy. Um, and I was like, no, I'm I'm sure. And, and I think it was just a trust thing from all parties. And dealing with surrogacy, you have to deal with the agency and the therapist and the IVF doctor. And there's so many different doctors rather than just your OB. Right. Um, and it's such a different experience. But it I think is. you also had to get Steve on board to move quickly too. Was this the first time you guys weren't exactly on the same page or was he ready as well? So, you know, Todd had mentioned that we did surrogacy and adoption at the same time. And this kind of leads into how Steve and I got to be at a point where we weren't on the same page for the very first time in 16 years at this point. And, um, So we thought there's no guarantee in life. So we could go through another surrogacy journey and at 39 weeks or 28 weeks or six weeks, we could lose the baby again. And so we thought, let's do surrogacy and adoption at the same time. And I I don't know if it was just my frustration and my pain and my grief that got me to the point of saying like, I can do this. Like it made me more angry and gave me more power and drive to do this. Um, And I think everyone telling me I couldn't do it and everyone- Fueled you. To be like, no, actually watch me. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the adoption 
people saying, oh, it takes years and years and years. And I was like, oh, what about weeks and weeks and weeks? Because I will prove you wrong. And, and how hard is that? Because it is so difficult in the adoption world to try to move things quickly. You're having to basically like sell yourself to the best, to be the best parents that you can be and prove to these women that can't carry, can't care for the child, um, that you are going to give their child the best life possible. And how can you do that in, you know, a hundred pages or in a paragraph? I mean, they have to feel like it's emotionally right for them. And I think that that is where it gets really twisted because society makes us think, oh, just go adopt. It's so easy. Just go to the orphanage down the street, pick a baby, and you'll be fine. And it is not that at all. Adoption is, oh, is so messed up. The, the way our society has made adoption is almost impossible. Like you, not only are you paying thousands and thousands of dollars to care for a child that's going to go into the system, which shouldn't be like, I feel like someone should pay us to adopt a child um, because they're going to be having to pay for it. That in itself is in a twisted. different way. Right. Um, but I just feel like there's so many different directions and avenues that you can go to when you go through adoption. Um, you have, there's adoption consultants, there's adoption agencies, there's adoption lawyers, there's, you can have more than one agency, you can have more than one consultant, you should you? I don't know. Um, I guess we ended up with three agencies. Um, we had a social worker for our home study that you have to have. Make sure you have hot water because they'll come and check. I had to make blueprints of my house. I had to... What do you mean blueprints? So they, you have to make... You have to have a home study of basically how much money you make, the history of your family... Um, basically your whole life. And they asked me, we need the blueprints of your home. And I said, well, you're standing in my home. So right. can you just take pictures yeah. maybe? Yeah. Look around. <laughs> maybe it's just like a normal home. Take a video. Right. I don't know. And she was like, well, don't you have the blueprints? I said, ma'am, no, I didn't buy this house when it was made. So right. I don't know. Right. She said, well, you're going to have to make them. I was like, so you made, like you made them. I made now. I even drew the stairs in. I maybe should be an architect because I was so proud of myself on these blueprints. They were really valid. They were legit. Because we have a two-story home. So I had to make it look like it was the two-story home. You had to put what room each one was. Oh, and how big they were. What rooms the baby could go in and what rooms the baby couldn't go in. Not that it, like why? Okay, so obviously like, I'm going to say that the baby can't go in the garage, but why would the baby has to go to the garage to get in the car? You know what I feel like? It's like trying to talk yourself out of a speeding ticket. Like you're trying to prove yourself to be like, no, like, trust me, I'm like a really right. good person and 
I am going to give this person the best life and I have never done anything wrong in my past. And you can, you know, ask all of my family and all my friends, the amount of recommendation letters that we had to get and sign and all these, there are people like high schoolers and people on the streets that are having babies left and right. And they don't have to be questioned, but someone that wants to buy a baby and parent that child, put them through college, give them the best life and education that they can. And I'm having to prove this over weeks and months. So, so many things with adoption that I just didn't realize, but when you're signing up, you're signing up pretty much for anything. Didn't you say you have to fill out this form, but maybe the birth mother has done drugs. There's all of these things that you can opt out of, but at the same time, tell me your experience of where does that, where do you stop that line if you want to get further in the adoption process? Yeah. So I'm, you know, very naive when I'm signing up to the adoption process and I'm filling out the form and my name, my address, like I'm going to the doctor's office and they come to the the point where it says, um, would you be okay if the birth mom did any of the following? And it's like cocaine, meth, alcohol. And I'm like, no, why would right. I want the birth mom to, this is my child. Why right. would, so I was like, no, no, no. And I'm thinking, why, why are they even asked? This is so stupid. Of course, I'm not going to want the birth mom to do this. And I turned it into the agency and they quickly called me back and said, so let me just tell you, Kristen, if your answers are going to be this, you're going to be waiting years and years and years. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I don't understand. Uh, They said, you have to if you want any chance of adopting a baby, you need to answer yes to all of these. And I was like, if I have to check yes to all of this, it's, I don't know really where, what the result is going to be. I think that was a a big learning curve for me with adoption is being willing and open to any of those scenarios and knowing that if you want to adopt, these are going to be potential issues. Is that when when we hear that adoption takes so long, years sometimes, is that because of the the process of yeah. what you need to do to even be considered or even get to the next step? There's so many people in line that want to adopt, especially newborn. Now, if you want to adopt an older child, you can do that sooner. But most people that are looking into adoption are coming from people like myself that can't have children of their own um, or just want to help and take children out of the system and and not, you know, have them be sitting in homes, in foster homes eventually to find their parents. Um, but, you know, I just feel like, I, f- I feel like I was like trying to find an agent in LA. Like I was like, yeah. here's my resume. Here are the people Let that I know. Let me put on a show for you. What what else can I do? Like I had to make this book. Okay. So, and if you're not, if you're just listening, this is a like eight by 10, uh, no, an 11 by 14 book. It's basically a magazine of- But most people need to have this, correct? You no, know, you have to oh, have you have this. have to. Okay. 
So you have to have a book of our story and who we are and where we're from and why we would be the best parents to parent your child. Most of the agencies you have to pay for a service because most people, unlike myself, aren't in the creative right. world and don't do stuff like this. So there's specific people that create there, these. There's, of course, and it's more money, you know? So you're they're always trying to get that money. And when we handed this to the agency, they said, well, we didn't even give you the template. How did you know what to put in here? And I said, because this is who we are. I don't need a template. And they said, this is the best book we've ever seen. <laughs> We're going to use this as an example of what other people should have as their book. And I said, well, please do. They said, have you ever considered offering this as a, as a job? And I said, no, <laughs> I I need my job to be a mother is what right. I need my job to right. be. And I need you to really And I need you me. to do that yes. and not try and sell my profile <laughs> book, please. Well, you know what's so interesting, though, and not to like a couple minutes ago, I was going to play devil's advocate in a certain way and say... Unfortunately, what ruins the, probably the adoption process for people like you and your husband who are high achieving and smart and compassionate and would be amazing parents is there probably are horror stories of families adopting who mistreat neglect. the children, yep. who neglect them, who who don't have a home that's suitable. So I understand – I actually weirdly understand like, well – yeah, I have a garage. We'll make sure that the child isn't living in the garage. Yeah. Well, the thing that strikes me the most about it is it must be so difficult, especially everyone has a different journey. You're still grieving the loss of London. You cannot personally carry a child. You need adoption and you have all these, you have, you know, baggage that yeah. you have like strapped to your, your back. And then you're going through this process. And I feel like even though to your point, people are trying to put things in place to to keep children safe and and to make it you know as legal as possible but at the same time i'm sure there were emotions that were just coming up of just this is making me feel even worse yeah you, you know even well, worse about our current situation i'm selling myself it, it, i just wonder yeah. what that felt like well it's crazy because we weren't allowed by the agencies and the therapist to use London's story in our book because they didn't want any birth mom to think they're replacing my child because they lost a child. We want, they, the agency was like, we want you to just act like that didn't happen. And that was really hard to say like, but that did happen and that's why we are, doing right. this right now. And that's who we are. And they they did make a good point that once you do find a birth mom and feel like maybe this could be a good match for you, then that's when you open up about the loss of London and what happened. But to not mention her in our story is a huge chunk that I feel like is missing. And that's something that is so hard for me to read this book and to say like, oh, well, this is just a couple that can't have children because she had endometriosis and right. had a hysterectomy. So the end, more. you know? Well, also this process isn't all of it. There's this process that you have to get through, but then 
you you then and you were telling me one day about this this meeting that you thought you were meeting. Oh, the scammers. Okay, so tell us this story. This was insane. So because you, you've been scammed how many times in adoption, we, which I didn't even know was a thing. Yeah, we've we were uh, scammed three times um, in the process and after, lost money on how many of them? So the first um, birth mom that we spoke with ended up not even being pregnant. She just wanted the attention that she could have somebody at her beck and call and would care for her and talk to her and emotionally. Um, so she was just very fucked in the head to, to say, I'm just going to mess with this family and know that I can, if I need to talk to someone, that Kristen will be there because she wants my child, even though there was not a child. The second one um, went to her ultrasound for her, I think it was the very first ultrasound that she had seen and said, I don't know if I'll be able to place this baby. And that scared me. I was like, I can't, if you're not like comfortable right now, like when you see the baby in real life, you're not going to place this baby. What are the rules for that legally? So there, surprisingly, Todd, there's really no rules. Um, they, the birth mom legally has the right to the child, depending on the state, up to 72 hours after the child is born. So even at 71 hours after the child is born, no matter where that state is, they can still decide, I actually want to parent that child, even though the parents may be caring for the child in the hospital, that birth mom can come back and say, mm, actually, I want the baby. And um, crazy enough, after all we had been through, we were matched from an agency with a birth mom and she was a piece of work. Um, in in adoption, not only are you paying the agency and the uh, attorneys and lawyers and everything, you also are paying for them to live. You're paying for their food, you're paying for their laundry. And she would call me maybe 30, 40 times a day saying, she didn't have enough money to feed her kids. She couldn't do her laundry, this and that. Um, and I thought, if this is what it's like to get a child, maybe I'm not meant to be a mom. Like this is to a point where I don't feel like I can do this. This is emotionally taxing for me to where it's... A, starting to affect my mental health in a way that I don't want a child anymore. Right. Like I would, I would imagine at, at a certain point you are just like, what is happening to us on I, this I mean, it was, journey to, it to was have a child? Painful. And so we finally reached a point where the birth father wouldn't sign off on the papers. He didn't want anything to do with it, which if he would have signed the papers meaning he wouldn't have anything to do with it. So things just got a little fishy there. And so we decided to end that journey. Um, and so we lost $15,000 um, on this wow. specific and you just, birth there's mom. There's no refund, obviously. No refund because it was all for her expenses and had already been spent out. And um, come to find out, we got really close with the social worker and um, – that birth mom ended up scamming 
the she ended up re uh, matching with another family and not placing the child. So that would have been us again at the hospital, leaving empty-handed. Now we lucked out after those people saying years and years and years. I love proving people wrong. As yeah, so you can how tell. did you guys get someone so quickly? So we, um, it just so happened that the social worker that we were working with with an agency had gotten a call from this young 21-year-old and her aunt had called and was like, "She's, I have um, my niece that is pregnant. She's not going to call you, but she can't have this baby. We need to put this baby up for adoption. And... Um, I was on the other line with the agent and I said, um, who was that? And she said, oh, it's, it was another intake. And I said, could that potentially be for me? And she was <laughs> like, no, I don't think, I don't think it's right for you. And she was doing that just to protect. She wanted to learn more about the situation, but I was on the, on the on phone the, yeah, with her as that intake came in. And so we ended up matching with a birth mom that had done no drugs, no drinking, just couldn't afford to care for another child. And I still keep in touch with this birth mom and she is family to me. She's like a little sister Aww. and she came to Bexley's first birthday party and she is and always will be um, one of the most important people in my life. And then as we mentioned, simultaneously, you're also starting a second surrogacy journey. If you can just kind of quickly explain, you know, the timing of those two things and how that second surrogacy journey began. When we decided we were ready to start the surrogacy journey again as, as we were doing adoption, um, they now told us the wait would be six months to a year to find wow. a surrogate. surrogate. And I was like, oh no. And they said, that's even you cutting the line. Right. Oh and yeah, putting us surrogacy in front can take of years everyone. as yes. well. And I thought, no, 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 I need, I need a baby. <laughs> At this point, I need a baby, any baby, please. And so I wasn't really quite sure how long adoption would take, you know, cause everyone's telling me years. So in that time, a really cool, godly event was presented in front of us. Um, the doctor that delivered London called us and said, I have a surrogate. Um, I don't know if she wants to do another journey, but she's done three other journeys for me. And I think she would be a really good match for you and Steve. And, you know, the agency was telling us it could be six months to a year before they could deliver us a surrogate. And so we were thinking maybe... And hopefully this doctor has something going for us. And there was no certainty whether she wanted another surrogacy journey or not. And so um, this was on a Friday. And on Monday, um, the doctor came into the office and on her desk on the very top were papers for from the surrogate to be cleared to start another journey. And it was the most amazing meant to be situation that the doctor that delivered London also then connected our next surrogate with our next journey. And our surrogate Kayla could not have been a better match for what we needed and what we were going through. 
And for her to not only take on the surrogacy journey, but to take on a couple that had just been through the most traumatic situation, they're all- That's a lot. It's a lot of pressure to feel like you can fill that void for that family because they can't, they can only do what their body is is gonna do. And you know, and they can't say, I I know that I'm gonna give you a baby, but- um, But almost more importantly, how is that journey for you guys? I mean, uh, just knowing, again, not comparing these two situations, but like our first journey, we'd have a certain dynamic, Tara and I, and she'd have a certain level of anxiety and then going through a miscarriage and kind of knowing what can happen just builds the anxiety. So I just can't imagine you guys having gone through what you went through in your first surrogacy journey. Like I, I would have even been every week like asking for do another pregnancy test. Like how's the heartbeat? Is is the baby kicking? Like was there I mean, how did you guys handle that? Surprisingly, I was the complete opposite. I was very disconnected from the journey. And I think that was because our adoption came first. And so in that timeline, we ended up being matched with a birth mother and our daughter, Bexley, was born on January 21st. And while we were at the hospital and she was going to be born that morning, we found out that our surrogate was confirmed pregnant. That's so cool. With our son. <laughs> and so we had a due date on that day that Bexley was born. And so I think had it been reversed, I think I would have been very on edge, very anxiety ridden, very um, just worried the whole time. But I also had in the back of my mind, I wanted to prove those doctors wrong that kept saying, I don't think you're ready. You need to let that time go by. And I also, I just wanted them to know like I was ready and I wasn't going to micromanage that journey. And I was going to let what was meant to happen, happen in that journey. And I kept saying in the back of my mind, what happened was only a small chance of what happens to people. How could it happen to me again? And I was hoping I was right. Also, it's interesting to note that during your second surrogacy journey, the surrogate was experiencing some stomach issues. The Mm -hmm. doctor probably very sensitive to remembering what happened with London at a full-term pregnancy said, let's get this baby out four weeks early. And I think unless you go through pregnancy or surrogacy after loss, you never really are faced with these decisions of four weeks early. Well, that could mean the NICU. That could mean several things. Yeah. But for someone who's probably gone through the trauma you've gone through, was that option comforting to know, A, we're getting our baby out quicker, B, safe in a hospital, In even if it, even if, the baby had to go to the NICU, even if he did, you were around doctors. Just talk me through a little bit of that. So where was that target? That's <laughs> that's the most important part. And I had just spent over $400 on groceries. And I get the call from the doctor saying, Kayla is sick and she's been in here twice to get fluids. I think it's safe for me and for you to just say, let's get Ford out. My initial thought was, 
fuck yeah, let's do this. I'm like jumping in the Target parking lot. Like, yes, I am so excited. I'm going to be a mom tomorrow. And so I call Steve and Steve's like, what? You mean like tomorrow? I have work. People are having heart attacks. And I'm like, no, no, I don't care about these other people. We have to go. And so um, I had no hesitation to say, let's get him out. I think there, he was fully, obviously, could he have grown more in, now keep in mind, he's a big boy. Yeah. He was, you know, six pounds, seven ounces, four weeks early. So, I mean, he's going to be some linebacker pretty right. soon. I mean, he's a big, big boy. Um, but I think- But even if he wasn't, even wasn't if he wasn't, thought a it, little comforting to know? So comforting to know that she's in the hospital, she's in safe hands, she's being monitored, right. that heart is being monitored. So if any point the heart is dropping, they cut her open and we, we get the baby out. Um, so to know that she was in safe hands that whole time, I felt right. there's no way that this can end in stillbirth. And then also, you know, we talked about this and I just, again, I'm always thinking of the people listening that are connecting or have gone through stillbirth, just wrapping your mind around losing London and then moving into the next phase, yeah, which is pregnancy and surrogacy and adoption. You struggled a little bit with wanting London in a way to come back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you, can you speak on those feelings? I think that when you were talking to me about this, it was just so interesting. And I bet there's so many women that would be nodding their head that have experienced this, that it probably doesn't make a lot of sense when you're saying it, but you feel it. So Tara has asked me, do you, are you done? Do you want another child? And I want another child, but I don't know if I want another child because I want another child or if because I want London back. And it's a very twisted way of thinking, but I even think I would want my embryos to be tested to know I want a girl and I'm hoping that she looks like London. And and is that because I want to fill that void of her being gone or do I really want another child? And I really have to ask myself that because I think I, I know in my heart that I want London back and that's why I want another child. But I I also am so sad that I'll never get to experience a newborn baby and, and holding right. baby Georgie today, yeah, it just like made me have all those feels again, like the newborn smell and like just holding them and them cuddling so close. Like my babies are 16 months and almost two and they're like little green giants, like just climbing all around. And well, I think also, and and yes, you, you're wanting to, to go back to that newborn stage that I think everyone, you know, as their kids grow, you just, you don't want them to, you want to, you know, just stay stuck in time. But I do think it makes a lot of sense for you, especially because I don't know if we mentioned this, but your donor eggs, you have, or they're embryos with your husband's sperm. You have 12 to 15 of them. And London was one of them, but you have others from that same batch of eggs. Yeah. And obviously when you went through surrogacy, you have the same donor Mm -hmm. egg 
that is that is your child. Right. <laughs> but you couldn't test if it was a girl or a boy. So it turned out to be a boy. Yeah. And I'm sure in your mind, though, you think of that, the genetics that would continue with London, that if you could test and find out if it's a girl to continue. I mean, I, I have to be honest and say I was a little sad that it was a boy. <laughs> You're like, oh. <laughs> I mean, and I think it was just because I was so heartbroken by London that I wanted another London and she was so beautiful mm -hmm. and I just loved everything about her that I wanted her again. But I think mentally, gosh, it was so good that it was a boy, you right. know? And I think probably taking a step back, having, it's part of the grieving process. I'm sure that you just want London yes. to come back. But then these two beautiful children are their oh. own uni unique individuals. Yeah. I, and that's the crazy thing with loss moving forward is I can't imagine my life without Bexley and Ford. They are the reason I am here today. They are the reason I am the mother I am. And had it not been for London, I would not have known these two amazing human beings. And just to think of never knowing Bexley, like for her to be living with another family. Yeah, and, it doesn't even make sense. And for Ford to just be sitting in a Petri dish for, the, for forever, you know? And just so... I know that we've talked about this before, but it's something for everyone to think about. I would never trade, I would never want what happened to happen, but I wouldn't trade it. Like, well, because I, it's yours and it, and London was here and she you, was, you and know, she it, still it is very present and inspired a lot. I mean, just the fact that your doctor then hooked you up with the yes. surrogate and all that stuff. So and the same team delivered Ford, the same nurses that were there, they all trans, they all changed their schedule in the hospital. They were all wearing their London is the reason sweatshirts in the hospital. And it was a celebratory moment where a few steps down last year where the worst, everybody in the hospital was crying. A year later, everyone is you know, circled around the birth of Ford while London is just so present in the room. The journey with London and then what you went through after to get your other two kids, like what, what, what has it taught you about, it's a corny question, but like lessons about life and how do you live your life differently now than you maybe you did all those years before? Or I guess it wasn't that long ago that, with London, so a few years ago. I mean, yeah. what's different about life now? You know, I think that, I live in the moment a lot more. And I used to want to present everything so perfectly and uh, not to present my way, my life in, in the fact that I live a perfect life, but I'm a lot more raw now. And London has brought out a side of me that makes me a better mom. She makes me enjoy life. Um, changing diapers and dealing with meltdowns. And she makes me enjoy those moments. And being a wife, a better wife to and to, to Steve, um, I love him differently now in a way that I never thought I could. And so I think it has just changed me to make me a more raw person. 
Tell me how the nonprofit London is the Reason came about. So it was actually very soon after we lost London that I was trying to process losing her, what her purpose was to be lost so soon. And I was trying, I guess, to make a positive out of such a tragic event. And when we left the hospital as intended parents, being on the surrogacy journey side um, of things, there was no support for intended parents and surrogates dealing with loss specifically. So when I went home and the surrogate went home, there was no resources specifically for us to be able to heal. We would buy books on infant loss, but finding ourselves skipping 75% of the book or the, the support group, because none of that really applied to us. I didn't carry a child. I didn't have postpartum. I didn't have milk in my breasts. Um, and on her side, she didn't bring home a baby. She wasn't feeling, you know, anything other than the milk and the pain that she was suffering healing. Um, so I, I thought for sure there has to be something out there for surrogates and intended parents. I couldn't have just discovered something that the world is missing. And sure enough, there is nothing for surrogates and intended parents from loss. And so that is when I learned what London's purpose was. And I feel that London was born and London died to give her life to help others. Um, that are going to be suffering from loss in a surrogacy journey. And so I started a nonprofit organization called London is the Reason, and it offers free support and resources, um, books and guidance that will help them succeed in their healing journey, um, specifically in line with the journey. So there are other surrogates in the program that have gone through loss that they can talk with. And there's other intended parents along with myself that they can talk with. And I think that's when my healing really began is when I knew that there were other people like myself Going that had gone through the loss. And I think what's so cool of you creating this, I love wearing my, repping wearing yes. my sweater, but I think like you said, you were reading all of these books of loss and grief, but you couldn't find yourself in it. So right. your journey is so specific to you with it being a surrogate, with, you know, having another person part of this, you know, awful journey yeah. that you had to, to go on and experience this loss. And I just think, you know, having a destination to go to and know this person knows exactly the feelings I'm feeling is you know, really powerful. Yeah. So if there's anyone out there that has been through it or knows someone that has been on the intended parent or surrogate side and they need support and guidance, visit londonistthereason.org. London is the reason. Yeah. Okay. Londonistthereason.org, guys. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us and sharing your incredible journey to motherhood. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to Unexpecting the Podcast. 
Please subscribe, leave a review, and follow Unexpecting Pod on Instagram for info about upcoming weekly episode releases. This episode was brought to you by Happy Beginnings. Happy Beginnings was personally the surrogacy agency that we used to bring our gorgeous baby girl, Georgie, into the world. We worked closely with Happy Beginnings and our wonderful surrogate, Michaela, to make the journey as personalized and truly beautiful as possible. Happy Beginnings is an all-female-run agency established in 2005, and they have helped bring over 3,000 babies into the world. Thank you for all you do, Happy Beginnings.